The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. This morning we're continuing through what is one of the most profound parts of all of Scripture. All of Scripture is God-breathed. All of Scripture is equal in its glory. But there are certain sections which plumb into depths that take us into places where we would not normally uh, go, as it were. And this section of Romans, the Paul's letter to the Roman church, is one of those sections. As Martin Luther had said, that when he looked and read, he believed that it was as if God was opening heaven's doors for him. Uh, that he saw glimpses into the glory, into the beauty uh, of heaven through uh, the book of Romans, this letter, the greatest letter ever written by the Apostle Paul. And Paul has been writing and has been building and teaching that all of humanity created by God for God's glory has fallen. That there is a common problem within all of humanity and that is that all of humanity is equally lost and without hope except in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But then he comes and he says, but I believe this to be true, that I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and then to the Gentile. That Paul believed that it was the power of God to change hearts. It was the power of God to reconcile himself uh, to mankind and that we are given the hope of heaven, that we're given restoration, that we're given uh, the righteousness of Christ, that he uses these big words of justification, uh, that through Christ you have been justified, that you have received perfectly the righteousness of Christ as credited and accounted to you. It's not that your balance uh, in your bank account is empty. It is absolutely filled with the righteousness of Christ, and that every debt that you had has been fully paid by him, and that he took it upon himself And that more than that, the judge is a satisfied judge, but he's also now become our father. That God is Abba, Father. He is our Father, whom we celebrate and who celebrates us. That there is a deep and a profound intimacy that comes. And he's been building all of these themes through chapters 1 through 8. And now he comes to chapter 9. And for so many, we jump over to chapter 12. Chapter 12 starts... I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and blameless unto him. It's just easier to not deal with 9 through 11. Because 9 through 11 challenge us, and they ask questions. Questions like, did God's promise fail? If Israel isn't coming into the kingdom, if Israel has rejected Messiah, who was by nature, by birth, a Jew, if they've rejected him and hung him on a cross, and now the Gentiles are coming in, has God's promise to Israel failed? And we talked last week that no, his promise was never built upon the meritorious work of an individual or a people group, but it was always by God's sovereign design and choice. That when he called Abraham out of her of the Chaldees, he was a pagan, idol worshiping man. And God decided to have mercy upon him and make him the father of nations. And he moved through uh, the promise that it was never through bloodlines, but it was always through God's mercy. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. 
And we realized that it was neither their work or their goodness or even what he saw that they would do down the road. But it was simply that God set his mercy upon one and not the other. And we wrestle with that reality. We wrestle with that truth of God's sovereignty within the context of salvation and man's responsibility. And the thing that affects us most in this is that it assaults our pride. We want to be able to choose or not to choose. We want to have this. It gives us dignity. And for somehow looking at this biblical theology of saying it's all about God, somehow we, we lose dignity. We lose something about ourselves. Well, the fact of the matter is this. We're totally lost anyway. We have nothing. And God, rich in mercy, cared enough to save us through his son, Jesus Christ, on his own initiative, not based on anything that we do or say. And so Paul was asking the question in chapter 9, posing the first one. So has God's word failed? And the answer is a resounding no. And this week he asks another question. Is God unjust? Is God fair in his giving of and withholding of salvation to some and not to all? And it's a profound question. And it's one that, again, is important for us to tackle. It's important for us to tackle primarily because it's directly in God's word. And we need to wrestle with these things. So let's ask God to bless now his reading and hearing of his word as we come to it with humility, but with confidence that he'll teach us today. Let's pray. Father, teach us now, we pray, that we would see your glory, that we and our hearts would be assaulted by who you are, so much so that we would submit ourselves to you and that we would see all that we are designed to be, the beauty of the gospel, and it would lead us to worship you and give you glory and honor and dominion and power forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son, and not only so, but also when Rebekah has conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue Not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, 
For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So when he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So will we say to then, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not loved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is God's very word. May he add blessing to the reading and hearing of it. Amen. Well, Paul seems to be in classical uh, Jewish rabbinical style asking questions. And in setting up these questions and then giving the answer and giving uh, a response. And so we are going to ask questions this morning uh, as well. We're going to ask five questions this morning and briefly touch on them in the time uh, that we have. And the first question is simply this. The overarching question we've asked, is God unjust? So underneath that question, we're going to ask, what's the basis of salvation? It's important to go back to the foundation. It's important to go back uh, to the beginning and to ask that within this conversation of salvation and who is it that's in charge of salvation, who begins it, is God just or unjust within salvation? It's important to say, what then is the basis of salvation? Well, verses 14 to 16 tell us clearly, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The basis of our salvation has never been and never will be anything that we do. It is not by human will or human exertion. Paul can't say it any more clearly. And he says it over and over again. If you see it in the scripture, obviously it's important. If you see it in the scripture twice, it's probably really important. If you see it repeated over and over again, it's incredibly important. And it's repeated over and over again because people can't seem to get it. 
And that's what Paul's saying here. He says this simple, seemingly simple truth and reality that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not anything that you had merited, that seems so easy to get, doesn't it? But Paul says at the end of chapter 9, that is the very stumbling block that has caused so many to miss coming to faith. Because here's what, here's what we want. We want to pay for it. We want to think that we've added something into it. We want to negotiate because if there's anything that we add into our salvation, there is a point at which we can demand that God not push us further. Because we can say to him, I didn't pay or sign up for that. But if it is all by free grace, if it is all by his mercy, there is absolutely nothing that he can't ask or demand of us. And our response is only at that point, amen. You see, we don't like to be in that position. The gospel is a cosmic and universal assault to the ego and to the pride of humanity. And prideful people do not get it. They don't want it. And so at the very base, Paul says again and again, the basis of salvation is in and of God alone. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will not have mercy on whom I decide not to have mercy. And he doesn't explain it a lot more than that. He simply says, that's the basis. And so we come then with a good, another question. Okay, we get it. It's based on you, God, not on me. Therefore, if salvation is all from God, next question, does God owe salvation to anyone? If salvation is all from God, does God owe salvation to anyone? Well, we come to this. And we recognize that all humanity has fallen. Paul's already established that. All humanity stands guilty and lost. Uh, We know that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. We know that no one seeks God. No, not one. There's not one uh, who would pursue him. uh, That we are all at enmity with God. And it doesn't give a really pretty picture of humanity. And so we're stuck over here. And we're all under his condemnation. We're all under his judgment. All before Christ in that sense. And so the question then becomes, if all... If salvation from beginning to end is all God's work by his hand, by his mercy alone, does he owe it to anyone? And there's three possible answers. That he would give it to all, that he would owe salvation to everyone, or give salvation to everyone. That he would give salvation to no one, or that he would give salvation to some. Those are the only three possible answers. To the question of, uh, then if God, it's all from God, who does he give salvation to? Does he owe it to anyone? He doesn't owe it to anyone. So who then receives it? That God gives it to all. Most people, most biblical uh, students, Christians, church people, would throw that one out. God doesn't save all people. There is a movement afoot within the latter part of last century and the first part of this century that that is not emotionally palatable for the postmodern mind. And that if we want to make Christianity more palatable and we want to see more millennials and younger people come in, then we need to get rid of these scary, harder doctrines. That we need to clear the ecosystem 
uh, of these things. And so there are many who would say, yeah, you know, at the end of the day, love wins. At the end of the day, everybody gets to go into heaven. Even C.S. Lewis wrestled with this truth. It's a profound truth. Because deep down inside, we want everyone to be saved. We want to believe that everyone's saved. And we cling. We cling to it. I've done so many funerals for someone whose life didn't reflect one iota of anything spiritual or Christian. And their loved ones basically are begging, make sure that you let us know that he's in heaven or she's in heaven. We want to believe that they're saved. Well, did they believe in Christ? Did they trust Christ? Well, no, but. We so desperately want to believe this, but the scripture says it's not true. Or God could save none. And we know that the scriptures don't say that either. So we're left with God then saving some. All three scenarios would be just in God's action. If God decided to save everybody, he could do it. If God decided to save no one, he would be just. And if God decided to save some, he would still be just. And within this context, we recognize that God is not arbitrary in his selection. uh, That God's purposes in the midst of this in verse 23 say that he does this in order to show forth his glory. You may go, that seems like an odd reason. But think of it this way. God's glory, his weightiness, his heaviness, the very essence of who he is, it is the greatest good for all of humanity. And therefore, God is orchestrating even salvation so that it promotes and highlights the greatest good. And therefore, it's the best thing for us that somehow in the midst of this mystery, and it is a profound mystery, God says, I want you to see my glory. I want you to see my weightiness. And so we come and we've asked, okay, the basis of salvation and who gets saved? Well, some get saved. And so then it leads us then to this other question. Okay, Scripture seems to indicate that some are saved and some aren't saved. Is God unjust? Is God unjust in saving some and rejecting others? That lands. It's a question that Paul says resoundingly, no, he's not unjust. He's not unfair in the midst of this. But we have this question, and how you answer this question exposes something about the condition of your heart. How you answer this question exposes something about your understanding of the Scriptures. And I want to let you in on just a little secret. I I recognize that we come from different backgrounds, different theological frameworks, and that's okay. Recognize and notice what they were not asked in their membership vows. Do you believe in the five points of Calvinism? Do you believe and accept predestination as an election? They were not asked that. They were asked, do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, as the only sacrifice for sin, and wholly accepting him by faith through grace, do you receive him? That's the heart of the gospel. So I want to remind us of that. That's the heart of the gospel. So within this congregation, there are folks who fall on other sides of this discussion, some who believe in predestination and election, and others who don't. But guess what? You have the same question before you. Because everyone would acknowledge that God is powerful enough to save all, but yet he, within the confines of the mystery of his mind, determined not to. And some would answer it by saying this, yes, 
but he put it up to humanity and let humanity choose. Folks, that's the most damning position that you can find because if the biblical position on humanity is true, then none would be saved. Christ died for nothing. Or you can believe this, that God, rich in mercy, secured the salvation of some. And that Christ died. And though his death was powerful enough to save all, it was designed to save and make sure that some out of the all were saved. Everybody has to still answer the question. Because in both economies, God could have saved all, but he doesn't. And now it comes down to, is he just? Well, I believe our confusion and emotional distress comes from a bit of a misunderstanding of the word fair. We cry, I want fair. I want, to be, I want it to be fair. I want equity. I want justice. I've told my sons the entirety of their lives, no, you don't. You do not want justice. You want mercy. I promise you, you want mercy. In all of life, you want mercy. It's amazing when someone blows by you on the interstate and speeding and is reckless and is texting. You want justice for them. And when you blow by people recklessly texting and driving along, you want mercy. Officer, I've never done this before. And you cry and you flip your hair, ladies. We just know it and we reach for the registration. I'm, I'm done. I'm a man. But we want Mercy. You see, to say that something's unfair, I was looking and studying uh, Redeemer Church in New York City has a wonderful study on Romans. And it basically says to say to be unfair is to say that something is owed. And what we are saying is that God owed all of humanity salvation and it's unfair for him not to give it. This is a profound confusion and an incorrect understanding of Scripture. The Scripture says that no one deserves it. And if no one deserves it, then God's not unfair in not giving it to all. Again, these are weighty matters. And so we sit and we recognize, and John Stott makes the quote in the book, it's a wonderful commentary available for you to purchase out in the, in the lobby to help you study this great book of Romans. Paul's way of defending God's justice is to proclaim his mercy. It sounds like a complete non sequitur, but it's not. It simply indicates that the question itself is misconceived because the basis on which God deals savingly with sinners is not justice but mercy. For salvation does not depend on man's desire or effort that is on anything we want or strive for but on God's mercy. I'll quickly give you this illustration. This side of the room, both of you, both sides of the room, here's the deal. You've entered into a contractual relationship with me and each of you owes me one million dollars. And the result of a non-payment of that $1 million is a forfeiture of your freedom. Now, don't talk about the merits, and this is somewhat heretical. I get it, but it's an illustration that'll help. And so you each owe me this money, and now it's time to pay up. And none of you has a $1 million. None of you. None of you can pay me the $1 million. And so by our covenantal contractual uh, agreement, mutually entered into, I'm going to say to this side of the room, jail. You're going to jail. You lose your freedom. You lose everything that you have because you couldn't pay and honor your end of the bargain. This side of the room, I'm letting you off. You don't have to pay me back. 
I'm letting you go and in your freedom. How would you guys respond? Is that good news? Yeah, that's pretty good news. What did this side of the room get? Was it unfair for what I did to you? Not at all. Now, you're going to wish you were over there. But it's not unfair what I did here, is it? Why is it not unfair? Because there was a covenant and a relationship. What you're receiving is justice. What you're receiving is non-justice. You're receiving my mercy. Did I owe them mercy? Of course not. So how is it that I'm looked on and my integrity is impugned by not being fair? By not being merciful? And gracious. I saved some when none of them deserved to be saved. And I did it because I'm rich in mercy. And for you, you have no ground upon which to stand. You receive justice. That's the picture of salvation. But do you see how it wrestles against the heart? We want to say, that's not fair. I deserve better. I remember saying that. When you got a dad who's a pastor, don't say that very often. My daddy looked at me one day and said, Billy, you deserve to be burning in the gates of hell. So anything other than that is gravy, boy. You're right, dad. That's a very good answer. I appreciate that answer. Still not fair that my sister got away with it and I didn't. But it's this picture of saying we want fairness. But the reality is this. God is not unjust to save some. It's not unjust to save some, but what's happening to the others? It says that he passes them by, and don't have time to go into it fully, but he speaks within there. It says that he's hardened the hearts of others. What does it mean that God's hardened the hearts? Is he just a mean and spiteful God who looks up in heaven? But the picture with Pharaoh in here is the hardening of the heart from a biblical perspective is this. It's God saying to the human heart, you don't want me? Fine. You don't want my hand upon you? Fine. You want to be an end and of yourself? I will remove myself from you. And it speaks of basically God saying, I will let you go where you want to go. Hell has been described as the greatest monument to man's independence that God ever created. That mankind wanted a place where they didn't have to deal with God. And God said, there is a place. Now, I promise you, you don't want to go there. But I will allow you to go. But for some of you, I won't allow you to go. I'm going to intervene into your lives. And I'm going to stop you. And I'm going to arrest your heart. And I'm going to change it. And I'm going to save you. If that's the case within the life of the believer, you need to hurry up, I get it. If that's the case, how do we respond? For some of you, you need to respond with a pause today. You don't want God to let you go where you think you want to go. You want God to intervene into your life. Because there is a point in time, sadly, in the lives of individuals where their hearts can become so hardened to the gospel that it's almost impenetrable. And we wouldn't wish that on our worst enemy. But what we pray is that God would intersect your life. And you are here this morning for a reason. That before the foundations of time, God had determined that you were here. So that you could hear the gospel. That you could turn, that you could come and dine on this meal.
And how do we respond? We respond with this. I'm going to kind of walk and talk so I can get down front. We respond with this. If it's true that God is the one who's done everything, what does that develop within the heart of the individual? The first thing it develops is a deep and a profound humility. That God would save you based on nothing of you. That you are so humbled by that reality because you realize this, not one of you got to choose your parents. Not one of you got to choose that you got born into the family in which you were born or in the time and in the country and the place in which you were born. But God, rich in mercy, did. You weren't born in the seventh century in outer Mongolia never to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. He could have, but he didn't. And so even that, that I was born to Maggie and Bill McCutcheon, who loved Jesus Christ, and that I heard the beauty of the message of Jesus Christ from the moment I was born and even before, and that my mother faithfully prayed for me on her knees for years in my rebellion. Oh, what a gift. Oh, how humbling. That I didn't want him and hated him, and yet he wanted me, and he turned my life in such a wrath. How can I stand over anybody else and say they don't get it? Think of the person who you think could never get into heaven. They are on the fast track to hell. That person who comes into your mind, what if they're here today? How do you see them? If you're wondering why they're here, then oh, that exposes a pride within your heart. That somehow it took a little less mercy and grace to save you than it would them. It also makes us incredibly hopeful that through the gospel we have a hope that if God can change my heart, he can change anyone's heart. And if God can change me and he can change you, then guess what he can do through us within this world Folks, I don't care if you're Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, or apolitical. You have to admit this season of life is a mess within our political place. And here's what the biggest mess is. That we think that somehow what happens in November is going to change all that we hope it will. The issues of poverty are not going to be resolved in the next four to eight years. The issues of race, the issues uh, of inequality within our, our world. They're not going to change. But if people who are hopeful by the change of the gospel and the power within their lives all of a sudden got up and went into the places of poverty, went into the places, and we set aside all that we have, and we just went in with an incredible humility, and we served, and we cared for others, and we gave away what we have, and we cared for the needs of other people greater than the needs of ourselves, then change could happen. But prideful people will never do that. But only those humbled by the beauty of the cross. And the last thing is this. When you get this doctrine and it seeks and seeps into you, you worship. You sing. Show me a person in worship who doesn't sing and I will show you a person who has a spiritual problem. Oh, Lord, have mercy on me. Amazing grace. By mercy, my God, we sing. And so we worship. And so now we come to this table as an act of worship where Christ paid it all. And we come with incredible humility to receive this gift. Let's pray. Father, Heavenly Father, you are good to us and ready to forgive our sins. 
We believe that you are plenteous in mercy and hear the cries of all who call upon your name. O Lord, you are our God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to us and be gracious to us. Lord, would you hear our silent confessions as we come to this table in need of your grace, examining ourselves. 